Hello, everyone. Before we get into the second episode of The Terran Show, I just wanted to put a quick disclaimer at the start. This episode is recorded with Brent Walgamont, who is a uh, colorful character, and he uses a lot of colorful language. Uh, basically, I told Brent, this is your podcast. I want you to be you. And so... There is a lot of stuff in here that may be uncomfortable for some people to listen to. Brent talks about his experience as a male escort and occasionally gets a little bit graphic about his experience doing that. So if you are sensitive in any way to any of that kind of material or any sort of language, then this is a podcast you want to skip uh for sure i will be back next week with another guest who i'm sure will be a lot less graphic and a lot more uh palatable i should i think you could say so uh no worries if you want to skip this one please do if you uh if you think this might upset you in any way and if not if you are interested in this stuff i hope you continue on because it was a very interesting interview and i'm really 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 excited for people to listen to it so thank you and let's get on with the show Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Terran Show. I have a great guest with me today. I'm very much looking forward to this. Uh, it's really one of the reasons why I even came up with this idea in the first place was to get Brent Walgamont on the show to talk about his everything, all of his experiences. He's a, he's a very experienced guy. Uh, so I've got Brent with me here. How are you doing, Brent? My everything. I like that. I'm gonna, yes. That's the title of my book, I think, is going to be My Everything. <laughs> uh, I released the Terran show last week on Tuesday with the Rob Sesternino interview, and I have seriously been overwhelmed by the response. There's, there's already a bunch of people who have left reviews on iTunes, which has been so amazing. I didn't even ask for reviews. I just asked people to, to subscribe. I did tell people that they'd be my best friend if they subscribed. And I, I, I've just it's seriously it's been amazing. The amount of people that have that have said like, oh, I, it was a great interview. I'm super excited for this podcast. I, I'm seriously really, really touched and overwhelmed. I, I don't even know. So what you're saying is all of your fangirls liked it. That's that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, glad I have glad I've got Brent on for this. Uh, <laughs> now, and uh, I, I really will say really quickly, as I mentioned on the LFC podcast, that I did listen to the interview with Rob. It was very illuminating. It was very fun. It's just nice to see Rob let his hair down, so to speak. You know, not all buttoned up and have have a line ready to go, and uh, you know, ready to play the sound clip. It was just nice to hear him talk about himself a little bit and uh, indulge us a little bit. It really was. You know, I, I went to L.A. for the American Ninja Warrior taping and I got to talk to Rob on a more personal level when I was there. And I knew that uh, I had all, even more questions for him. And it really was just a conversation I would have had with him outside of it all in general. So I was just I was really happy I got to to do that with him. And I'm really excited moving forward to get to talk. You know, I, I came up with this idea because I figured people might be interested in hearing about uh, all these people I usually talk to. 
And even more so as I'm going along and I'm asking people to come on the show, I'm like, I can't wait to talk to this person and like get to know them a little better myself. Uh, but I'm glad that you listen. I'm glad that you like it. Uh, and I'm really excited to move forward with this. Um, so I put out a call for theme songs for the Taryn show, and I've already got some responses. Uh, <laughs> one from from Will Seaman. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to just play a few of them uh, as as the show goes on. We can we can we can vote on them. I can put up a poll or something, maybe uh, I'll, I'll eventually probably choose one. But uh, I, I'm really liking uh, the submissions I'm getting so far. So uh, here's here's from Will Seaman, uh, the Tarrant Show theme song. <laughs> Of his social life It's the Terran Show It's the Terran Show Don't ask if he's single You already know Cause it's the Terran Show A simple name For a simple guy With a simple face It's the Terran Show I mean I'm just I don't want to jump the gun But I feel like we have a winner It's pretty good It's pretty good Yeah Uh <laughs> he also, um, I don't, I don't want to play too many songs at once, but he also sent me another version. Uh, he said he recorded this one in the car. This one took him a long time to write. Um, so just prepare yourself. The, the lyrical genius on this one is incredible. Lord. I was, I was. I kept waiting for the end. I was like, "Is the, are we at the end yet?" Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, no, I I, pre- I prefer the uh, more uh, '60s version, not the heavy metal version. Yeah, Will Will seem a man of many talents musically. He can go all over the map. So. We love Will, the cuddly yes. Caucasian. Yay! <laughs> all right. Uh, so yes, keep keep sending in some submissions. I really I'm really enjoying them. Uh, I've got more to play for you next time. And again, thank you so much for all the response. People who have subscribed on iTunes, who've left reviews, it's really really meant a lot to me and uh, i hope you enjoy this one as well so without any further ado let's get into this interview with brent walgamont he's a very interesting guy i'm very excited to talk to him about everything i think the first thing that people might be surprised to find out about you brent is that you were involved in this uh they call it the staircase murders i don't actually know a whole lot about this so i'm going to be relying on brent to tell me and and hopefully uh i know there are some people who are familiar with this trial but uh if you are like me and you don't know much then i am coming from your perspective so you'll get a full debriefing of what this is but i have i've seen people who are are talking about Brendan? Like they've seen the the movie based off of this this court case and the the YouTube clips of you know like you testifying and they're like whoa Brent well where have I I've heard Brent Walgamot before he's on RHAP what is this the same guy it's this is crazy it is it is the same guy crazy huh uh, I think most people uh, hear me when they are randomly watching Dateline or 2020 or 48 Hours or Primetime Live or I was on Good Morning America or CBS This Morning. I mean, I was on everything at at one given time or another. And then obviously with the events of the Peterson trial over the past year, 
uh, that has come back up on TV again. So uh, I, when I when I saw that uh, things were happening and moving in the Peterson trial again, I was preparing myself for the onslaught of, oh, my God, is that you? Yes, it's me. I'm here. <laughs> All right. Well, it, it's uh, again, it, this is uh, certainly something that people are shocked to find out or at least surprised to find out. But there's a lot more to Brent's life than just this trial and a lot that led into this trial. So uh, I want to start, you know, let's let's back turn the clock back a bit. Um, you are involved in this trial because you were a, a male escort that was in communication <gasps> with Michael Peterson. Yes. Uh, an, another shocking fact uh, to find out about Brent. Um, but I, I want to know, you know, what. What was it that got you into being a male escort? I mean, for me, at least, I that seems like such a, a, a walled off world that I could never even understand, like how you got involved in the first place. I think the thing to understand about me is that inherently I'm a lazy son of a bitch. Like I'm always looking for a shortcut. I'm uh I, 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 I'm a big fan of Once Upon a Time and there was this spinoff show called Once Upon a Time in Wonderland and uh, to make a long story short it always talks about how magic always has a price and there are no shortcuts you can't use wishes to make your life better but I am like the mother of all shortcuts I'm always looking to make my life better and I really don't want to work to get there but at least I recognize that about myself and I'm not uh, self-indulgent where I'm like well you know I work so hard for all that no I, I really don't I, I just I wanted the money. That's what it was. I wanted the money and uh, the money was easy. And also I'm a bit of a show off. So uh, I, uh, I realized that as I grew up and uh, I actually became an escort. Uh, and, and just so people understand what we're talking about, male escort is the polite term for prostitute. I was a sex worker. Uh, so I was a sex worker at the age of 19. And uh, it was something that uh, led into the Peterson trial. But uh, uh, I was a sex worker on and on for on and off for a while, mainly because I needed the money and I didn't have a whole lot of opportunities to do anything else that I thought could feasibly support the lifestyle that I felt I was entitled to. OK, well, I know you went to you started to go to college, right? Yeah, I went to IU. I was uh, I was actually a really good student. Uh, we can get into that later. But uh, I, I was at the top of my class. And uh, I uh, went to Indiana University on a bit of a voice scholarship. People would be surprised to learn that I used to be a bit of an opera singer and a voice major in, in uh, college. But um, the problem with me was that I started majoring in the major of being gay. Uh, <laughs> I, a lot of people don't understand that, uh, you know, when you're straight and you get to have all these interactions with girls and they might be awkward, but, and they might be small, but they're interactions nonetheless. And you get to get those feelings out. You, uh, if you see a girl in class and you want to think, tell her that she's cute, you might pass her a note and then that your friend might pass her the note. And then somehow she gets the note and she's like, Oh my God, you're so cute. I love you. And then the, you know, the note comes back to you when you're gay, you don't get to do any of those things, or at least I didn't because, you know, I'm 42 years old. So I was graduating from high school in 1993. So um, all of those natural flirting inclinations that you have, they're all bottled up. So when they eventually do come to the surface, they're just like, it's like a champagne bottle at a new year's Eve party that you shook up. It was just something that uh, I, I, I couldn't get enough of. And I feel like if I would have had the ability to express those feelings at an earlier time in my life, I may not have quite ended up that way. But as it stood, when I went to college, I couldn't think about anything other than boys. <laughs> well, did you have plans to be a singer at that point? Was that what you 
we're hoping I, to be. I at didn't that know point. what I was at that point. Um, I even to this day, I'm 42 years old. I was listening to Rob's podcast and he was all talking about, uh, you know, as as he grew up that he was like, well, I have to I have to I have to be an adult now. I have to, you know, be the breadwinner in the family. You know, my father, uh, you know, maybe he didn't want to be a policeman. And uh, I, I, I need to be more like him. And I'm like, I'm the reverse of that. OK, I'm like, no, no, no. I, I want to stay a kid. I'm totally fine with this. No responsibilities necessary. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you feel like that would be a successful uh, career for you at that point? Did you feel like that was maybe uh, the right avenue or did you because I know uh, for me, I, I also that was actually something I considered when I was uh, leaving high school was my uh, my conductor was telling me that I should potentially look into going to college for singing. And it to me, it felt like. I would love to do that, but I would never be successful at it. So I, I felt like I could never actually right. try that path. I felt like I could be successful at it, but the amount of stick-to-itiveness that it would have taken, again, I'm a lazy son of a bitch, so I don't know that I have the wherewithal within me to work and get better at my craft and endure the onslaught of no thank yous, no thank yous, no thank yous. I wanted a yes, and I wanted it now. So I, I, I again, you know, what was my plan? I don't think I really had a plan other than they said I was good at this. I could get a somewhat of a scholarship doing it. Let's do that and see where it takes me. Did you did your parents kind of push you into going to college? No, my parents uh, didn't have a lot of money, but they had enough money where the state and the government wouldn't give them a whole lot of help. So uh, it was basically up to me. And of course, my parents, my dad's a preacher. My mom is a receptionist and uh, they wanted to help me. They felt like I was uh, a good kid and uh, they would love to see me go to college. On the other hand, they weren't going to necessarily push me. I think as long as I didn't end up in jail, my parents were happy with me. They were like a Prince Fine. You're like, we don't have to worry about him. He'll he'll end up on his feet somehow. And that's the one thing that I think you'll understand about me as our interview goes on is that. I may be a lazy son of a bitch, but I always end up on my feet. I'm like a cat. I always <laughs> find a way. I always find a way to get it done. And I never doubt myself. So going into the Peterson trial, I wasn't phased by it. I really wasn't. And uh, I'm sure some people are going to say, well, you know, how, how, how did you deal with that? Uh, and, and what was that about? And, uh, and basically just the, all of the things that come with that. And, the, and then, you know, it's something that you can't get away from because even after the trial was over, I was in newspapers and on television and it was replayed over and over and over and over and over again. And people want to talk to you about it. It's just, but it, it's never something that I've been necessarily ashamed of. Yeah, well, you said that you you felt like you were entitled to a certain lifestyle. Uh, what, what kind of life did just like a lifestyle of being, having money? Is that really yeah. what it was? I, yeah. I mean, uh, I've never hidden this from anyone, but uh, uh, it, it, I think that my sexual attractions to men, to older men rather, and to uh, people who are a bit worldly probably go hand in hand. I mean, I don't go looking for people, that have money. My first two, I have had three major relationships in my life and the first two, they didn't have money, but they had enough to support me. And that's all I really wanted. I didn't need to be rich. I just wanted to be safe more than anything. And I feel like those relationships provided me with that because I just didn't want to, you know, all through my younger years when I was with my, my parents, my dad was like, as I said, was a preacher. And um, as when you're a small town preacher, 
you move around a lot because congregations they get sick of you real fast. It just seems like to me anyway, every two to three years, it would be like, you know, here's a new church or here's a new school you have to go to. And I always wanted a bit more stability than I had. And I feel like I, I, I just wanted to be okay. I just wanted to not have to worry about money. I just wanted to not have to worry about friends and a life. I just wanted to be safe. The difference with, with me more than anything, I feel like, is that I went after it. You know, I, I, I knew what I wanted and I knew how to get it. I didn't know exactly how or who I was going to end up with, but I wanted to make sure that I ended up in a safe place. And even though my life took a lot of, uh, it was a bit of a roller coaster to get there. I feel like that I knew where I was going most of the time, even if I wasn't in control 100% of the time. Okay. So, and so you felt like it, when, when you were in college, did you, you, you dropped out first and then became an escort? Is that? Yes. I went to college as a freshman, obviously at 18 years old, at 19 years old, I dropped out because I mainly just couldn't afford to go back. I had flunked out of my second semester of IU because I just stopped going to school. That was the problem. I would I would rather go out to uh, hang outside the club and uh, meet a boy or or, or go down to the uh, locker room and see if I could find somebody rather than go to class. I was too interested in all these other things rather than what I should have been interested in, which was going to school. So I dropped out because I flunked out of the second semester of my freshman year. And because of that, the partial scholarships that I had went away. And I was a bit embarrassed to tell my parents about it and why it had happened because I'd always been such a great student growing up that I ultimately decided to stay in Cleveland. I was a worker at a, a place called Cedar Point. Um, it's an amusement park that uh, is in Ohio. And they had this thing, uh, you know, as you go to any amusement park, they have these little shows where people who are basically it's college students who are voice majors. They put on shows. My show was hot hits of the 90s. So it's in, it's in um, 1993, 1994 that this is happening. And already they're doing a show about the 90s. So I like <laughs> that very much. That was very, very, very on time there. Okay. So how did you go from that to, to being that? Uh, well, because yeah, I know. How did, how, how did you go from that to, it's from Cedar Point to being an escort? Well, Cedar Point ends. I mean, it's only, it's only a seasonal thing. It's not like Disney World where it's open, you know, year round. C Cedar Point is only open during the summer. And when that job was over, uh, I couldn't go back to school because I didn't have the money for it. And I somehow got into male escorting. And I remember how it happened. What happened was I had a friend of mine who I actually am still friends with to this day. His name was Matt. And he ran an escort agency. And I don't remember how I became friends with him. I think he was just a guy at the club. Here's the thing. At the time, he was a straight guy hanging out at a gay club. Later on in life, he would come out of the closet. But at the time, he was very much like the one straight guy who happened to be at the club. And I never doubted he was straight for a second because he was so stereotypically masculine. Of course, later on in life, I would figure out that, you know, those type of guys tend to be the gayest of them all because <laughs> they're, they're using like their masculinity to cover up for certain aspects of their life. But anyways, I, that, he was a guy who was a bit of a, uh, a wannabe mobster. I guess I'll call him. I, I think he'll kill me for saying that, but it, it's true. And he had an escort agency called Silhouette Escorts. And he asked me one day, like, would, I remember we were having dinner at a restaurant and he said, would you like to do this? 
And uh, I was like, well, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a possibility. Um, I, actually, you know what? I'm not remembering the story correctly. Now that, see, it's like, I don't know if you, how old are you now? Let me ask. 25. How, okay. I'm 42. And oftentimes I'll remember things. And then as I'm, as I'm talking about them, I'll remember them correctly. Like yeah. I, as, as I'm recalling the story, I'm like, that's not how it happened. I remember how it happened now. So, okay. So let's, let's go back to the beginning. What, what it was, was I had a boyfriend at the time. His name was Walt. And he wasn't going to support me, but he knew that I was pretty much a lazy son of a bitch. And he said, you know, have you ever considered being an escort before? Because he had a friend who was an escort. And I said, no, what is that? I didn't understand what it was. He's like, well, you know, you go with these guys and, you know, they pay you and they spend time with you. And I'm like, do you have sex with them? And he's like, yeah, some of the time, but sometimes not. And, you know, it, it, it's easy. So why don't you take a look at it? So he hooked me up with his friend, Matt. That's how I met Matt. And I remember this. This is how it all comes back to me, because I went to the job interview like a normal job interview. I went in like a suit and a tie. That's how I went to my interview <laughs> for a male escort. You know, most guys who become a male escort, a lot of them, their education level is very, very small. Um, they're not very worldly. A lot of them are using drugs. And I know I'm not trying to paint with too broad of a brush, but you know, a lot of people, it's not their life's dream to become a sex worker. So you get people from all walks of life. I, on the other hand, was probably the most straight laced escort. I think silhouette escorts ever had. I was uh, a bit of a preacher's boy and I still acted like that. I was very prim and proper. Um, it was very Terran-esque. Like, uh, you know, I just, uh, I didn't swear a lot. I know how times have changed, huh? And I went to this job interview and I remember he said, well, uh, you, you prepare very well for it, but uh, he's like, I don't know if this is really right for you. He's like, I could, I could hook you up with someone tonight if you want and you could see how it goes. And I said, okay. And so that night he said, I had this friend, his name is Nikki. I would later find out, and I was not a sports fan at the time, that Nikki was best friends with Art Modell, the owner of the Cleveland Browns, and they lived next door to each other. So the house that I, that I went to that night, which was an absolute mansion, was right next door to the owner of the Cleveland Browns, and I was basically none the wiser. Like, I didn't realize the significance of who I was with at the time. And this guy was right out of a gay character. Like, he, was, he, was, he, he, was, he was right out of a, like a, a gay caricature book. That's what I want to say. He talk like this. He was a bit of a B. Arthur type or, Hey, come here, come here, Brad. How, how you doing? You know, uh, come here. Let's, uh, let's, let's see what you got here. Uh, how's your ass? Like, I'm not kidding. He, he really, he talked, you think I'm making it up. I'm not, I'm not making it up. His name was Nikki. He, uh, I think he was actually more of a mobster than Matt ever was. Like, I think there was a, an element to him that was involved in organized crime. I'm going to guess because he just had that air about him. And I went in and of course, again, I was all dressed up. I was like, you know, in a suit and a tie. And I think that was really a turn on to him because he could tell that I was not somebody who was necessarily from the wrong side of the tracks. I was somebody from, quote unquote, the right side of the tracks who had gotten into this. And that night I made $800 for about two hours worth of, quote unquote, work. And the work that I did with him was not work at all to me it was me embracing my sexuality so as i'm trying to embrace my sexuality i'm learning about it as i'm also working and i thought that was really really interesting because nikki 
wanted i mean i'm just going to speak very frankly just so you guys understand so i'm not trying to be gratuitously sexual or uh just swear every now and then but in order to get across the story of what's happening i'm going to have to explain a couple of things to you um nikki was a bottom and he wanted a young buck top to come in and just fuck the living shit out of him that's what he wanted and i wasn't sure i could do it but when it actually came down to it and i think the fact that i was 19 at the time probably helped me a little bit I did it. And, uh, I, I gave him the time of his life and I was a bit of a show off along the way. And I, I quickly figured out what he wanted and I was able to give that to him. So it was a bit like an acting gig where you, I'm trying to give someone their fantasy and I want him to be happy because I know he's going to report back to Matt and I really like this and I want to keep this job. So I'm really trying to make Nikki happy. And I, I was successful. The things that made me a good escort, because I feel like it's going to come up down, down the line. Um, I wasn't especially like gorgeous or anything, but I was fit. I was a pretty normal kid. I carried myself well. Um, my ass was pretty good. But the one thing that I was blessed with was uh, I have a pretty big dick. And uh, that would serve me well as time went on. Because there's not many things that you can fix about yourself. You know, you can, maybe you can fix your face. Maybe you can lose some weight, but you can't fix your dick. Like you've either got it or you don't. And I had it. And I quickly figured out that I might have something here. And I was off to the races from there. Oh my. Uh, yes, this is, this is, uh, it's exactly, I think what we all expected from a Brent interview. Well, it's, there's just no way to not talk about it because yeah. it's like, well, how, wh- why did you become a successful escort? I mean, the things that made me a successful escort were what were was that was the main thing. It was the way I carried myself in that because when I was an escort, I was always a top. And then some, some people don't understand. Uh, some people aren't gay or they're not. They don't have gay friends, so they don't really understand what was going on. Um, when you're when I say a top, that means I was in the dominant sexual position, which was I was the one on top, so to speak. And if you're a bottom, you're the person who is receiving the intercourse. And I don't know if you want to keep that in, but I think most people don't understand. I think, I think most people understand, but I'm sure there's a couple people out there who may not understand the lingo of it all. And when I was an escort, I really tried to be a top most of the time, all of the time, as much as I could, because I didn't want to put myself at risk as a bottom, if that makes sense. AIDS was a really big deal in the 1990s. And I always felt like if I was on top that my chances of contracting HIV were significantly less than if I was on the receptive end of things. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I, I mean, going into that first experience, were you were you scared at all? Was that like uh, were you like nervous? I mean, I, I, I can't even imagine being in that situation. I was a bit nervous. I remember when the only thing that I can remember, you know, this was so many years ago. The one thing that I do recall was the nervous energy that I had going to the cause as you would with anything that's new in your life. But I remember, you know, Nikki, he sort of felt me up a little bit. He asked me, he's like, go ahead and get naked. So I'm like, you know, I got naked and uh, he, you know, blew me. And uh, I I think I kissed him some. And uh, he was like, you know, he wanted, I could tell he wanted me to fuck him. And, uh, I, there was a moment where I was entering him where I was like, am I going to do this? Can I do this? I remember that. I remember it. It was like, if I do this, I'm not looking back. I remember that more than anything. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'm going to do this. Like, uh, this is good. You know, like I want this money. I want to make him happy. And 
it all. The, here's the other thing that was happening at the same time, Taryn. When I was in school, I was a bit of a nerd, and I never did any sports, and uh, I did some other things that we'll get into later. But uh, I, I, I wasn't very confident about myself. All of a sudden, becoming an escort or a sex worker, I was in control, and not only that, I was wanted. Okay. Um, the thing that I have left out of this whole story is that I had come out to my parents when I was 16. My parents did not have a very good reaction to me coming out. They do now. So I don't want anybody to feel sorry for me. And my parents always told me they love me. So there are a lot of kids who had it way worse than I did, but my parents did not respond well to me being gay. And that really impacted me because I had always been very close to my parents. So to have a way in life to reassert control and be really good at something and proud of yourself, even if it was being a sex worker, I was like, I'll take that. So uh, that's, that's pretty much how that started. Yeah. Well, I know this, that the HIV thing was very much a, an issue back then, especially, especially back then um, still obviously is now, but uh, how concerned were you about that? I know you, you know, you wanted to be in a particular position to minimize your risk, but uh, that had to be terrifying. Uh, it was terrifying. Yeah. In the 1990s, especially in the early 1990s, getting HIV was a death sentence. Now, are, are there some people who survived it? Yes, but it was a death sentence. However, as I mentioned, I didn't have a very good interaction with my parents when I came out. And uh, I think at my core, I didn't really love myself all that much at the time. And so in my normal sex life, away from escorting, I did allow myself to start having sex with guys unprotected. And not only that, I had sex with guys who I knew might be HIV positive. And I also had sex with guys who I thought could be HIV positive, And I ended up unprotected, having unprotected sex as a bottom. Meaning they were, I was letting them fuck me. And uh, I just, I, I was always sort of playing a bit of Russian roulette with my life. Like I didn't really care. I think I didn't really love myself. I, I just didn't see a way forward for my life. And when you feel like that, you're willing to take chances because, you know, I always tell people that using condoms is not something that is natural. Like you don't you don't go into sex going, ah, let me hold on one sec. Let me get this piece of plastic out and slap it over my dick. No, that's not how it goes. But I was brought up that way. But when you actually get into the heat of the moment, you don't want to do it. And it's always easier just to not do it. And uh, if you don't love yourself, I think that it's even more easy to. Uh, just say, ah, who cares? You know, so uh, I, I allowed myself to get fucked a few times without condoms. And uh, I didn't know if I was positive or not, but I kind of didn't care and I didn't get tested. Did you did you ever get tested? Was uh, was there a time when you finally decided, like, I need to figure this out? Yeah, we can talk about that if you want. Um, the uh, let's see. Fast forward to I, I was 25 years old. I had never been tested for HIV in my life. I had continued escorting, but I had grown tired of it. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. One day, I am walking to the coffee shop. I was living in Chicago at the time. And I see something on the front of the USA Today, which is Army gives two-year tours for GI Bill money. And I was like, two years? And I, so I investigated a little bit more. And I figured out quickly that the army would allow me to enlist for two years and I would get the full benefits of the Montgomery GI Bill, which was a heaven sent for me because I didn't have the money to pay for college and I wanted to make something of myself. 
And so I decided I wanted to join the army. And we can get into that at a later time. But in order to get into the army, I found out that there had to be an HIV test. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> fuck. I was like, look. Uh, and the, other, the thing about the time, and I, I, I think this is probably still true, was I wasn't going to let the government tell me that I was HIV positive because I didn't want that to end up on some official form or you know, in uh, my insurance or anything like that. I, I wanted to know myself. So I said, screw that. I'm going to go to the anonymous testing clinic and I'm going to find out my, my true status and let's see what happens. So I went there, I got tested. They said, we'll call you back in three days. I said, okay. Three days later, I'm in my room. I'm watching the golden girls. It's the HIV episode where Rose has a scare with HIV. I kid you not. This happened. I'm not making this up. I watched Rose and I had seen this episode before because I was always a Golden Girls fan. I watched Rose have a scare with HIV where she was confronting the mortality of her life. And about an hour or two later, around six o'clock, I got a call. They were open till eight. They said, we have your HIV test. I said, okay. So I went down to get my HIV test, totally prepared for it to be positive. I'm certain that I'm positive because I know many, many, many friends of mine who had sex one time unprotected and they ended up HIV positive. And yet I still had hope that maybe this is going to turn out okay, but I had not, I didn't have a lot of hope, but I was, I was anxious. I just wanted to know where my life was going. Am I going to end up HIV positive and probably dead again? I know times have changed, but my life as it stood at the time, I didn't know about HIV cocktails. I didn't know about prep. There was none of that out there. Um, and so I, I, I was certain that if I ended up with HIV, that I would probably be dead. That may or may not have been true. But when I went to the HIV office and they said, take a seat. And then the nurse comes in and she gives me my results. And she said, well, it looks like you're negative. And I said, that's good, right? And she said, yeah, that, that means that you are negative for the HIV antibody and uh, you do not have it at this time. And I literally dropped to my knees and grasped her hands and told her, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because all of a sudden, all of the possibilities that I had been thinking of were open again to me. I could join the army if I wanted to. I could get the GI Bill if I wanted to. I could have a life if I wanted to. And somehow God had his hand on me. I don't know if it was destiny or luck or fate or just a blessing, but I felt the most alive I have ever felt walking home that night. The HIV clinic was a good 30 blocks away from my house, and I had taken the train there. And when I got out, I walked home that night and it was in the winter. It was, I want to say December or January. And it was not snowing, but the air was rife with the smell of snow. Like it was like snow is coming. And I'm not trying to be overdramatic, but this is how I felt at the time. I walked the whole way home and I, I and, and I hate walking. If you know people who know me, I hate walking. I really do. Um, because I'm again, I'm a lazy son of a bitch. Why? Why? Let's just take a car. Let's just, let's just do that. You know, let's take the train. But no, I felt fine walking this time. And as I walked home, I made a little deal with God. 
as deals with God go. Because I told this story before to my friends and they're like, God doesn't make deals. I'm like, well, please, you know, that's besides the point. And that's something else I picked up from Rob, by the way, I used to say beside the point, but I've listened to Rob so long. I say it's besides the point now. (laughs) Um, I made a deal with God. I said, thank you. I will not let you down. Like I'm good. I'm going to do something with myself now. I promise you that I will not have unprotected sex again until I end up in a relationship with somebody, basically until I felt like it was okay. I'm not going to be willy nilly with my life. And I stayed true to that. I really did. Jay and I have been together for 13 years and it wasn't until year five that we finally started having sex without condoms because I just wasn't willing to second guess my deal with God, so to speak. But I had begun to love myself enough at that point that I felt okay doing it. But that, that deal with God held true for about 10 years. And that's probably the proudest I've ever been of sticking to something that I said I was going to do. And it's as simple as that. I know that people are like, of course, of course you can do that. That's simple. But I had been so willy nilly with how I had used condoms previously in my life that to actually stick, stick to that and meet really hot guys in the military and use a condom with them. That was something that I was pretty proud of. And uh, I felt like I was rewarded for that later on in life. Like I can only imagine just how, like how much of a burden that must have lifted off of your back. Like uh, maybe without even realizing it had been there, you know, did you feel like you were in a really dark place up until that point that? Yes. Yes, I did. I, um, I had grown tired of majoring in boys at age 25. Not to say that my sex life was any, any uh, worse for the wear, but uh, I had grown tired of it all. I feel like I'd seen everything. I had experienced everything. And I was convinced that I was positive. Again, I was uh, I had seen so many other friends of mine who had ended up positive after one or two sexual experiences with a guy. And I knew I knew that there were some guys who I had had sex with who were HIV positive. So I was like, what are the chances of me ending up? I, I just here's the thing. I assumed I was HIV positive. I, I took it as a grain of truth that I was, I never really considered that I could have ended up HIV negative. And, you know, I, I, I guess I was lucky. Yeah. Like I said, Taryn, I always end up on my feet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this, this really was like a turning point in your life. Then, you know, you found out that, you know, this thing that you felt like had been looming over you this whole time is no longer there. This burden has been lifted and right. now you, the world is open to you. So, you end up going into the army, uh, which we can talk about. But uh, but it was during this time that you had an interaction with Michael Peterson. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing about the army is that they don't pay you well. And uh, I loved the army. In fact, I've always joked that uh, the army needed me a lot more. Or sorry, the, I, I needed the army a lot more than the army needed me. That's what I always say, because uh, I uh, I needed the structure of it all. But the problem is they don't pay you that well. They really don't. I think they they pay you a little bit more nowadays, but uh, they didn't pay me enough for me to be able to live the kind of lifestyle that I wanted. And so I went back to escorting. I was actually escorting while I was in the army, if you can believe that. I was one of these soldiers that I didn't have a duty station like away from home. I didn't end up in Korea or Iraq. I was always uh, at what we call a a TDA. I think it was TDA. It was a TDA, like a, 
Uh, no, I think no. TDA is a temporary duty station. I'm not. I'm not sure. I can't remember the acronym of it all. But there are soldiers that are at the base, and then there are soldiers that are at like a base that's far away. And I ended up at Fort Bragg in North Carolina, which is uh, one of the main bases for the United States. And so a lot of people depart from Fort Bragg and end up in Germany or Korea or Iraq or different places. But that's the that's the home base for a lot of different uh, parts of the military. But then again, as I said, they don't pay you well. And so I went back to escorting. And uh, the one thing, again, that uh, I want to make clear is that my when I was escorting, I was actually pretty careful uh, because, again, these are people who I didn't really know very well. And I use condoms with them in my normal sex life. I had gotten a little lazy about condoms and I didn't really love myself. But as far as escorting goes, I never considered like escorting was never the part of me that I didn't like. Like I was, I, I just treated escorting like a job as time went on. And it was something that I needed to do in order to earn money. So going into the army, they don't pay you that well. I was like, how can I make up the difference? I know what I can do. I can go back to escorting. So I started escorting again, obviously under the nose of my superiors who would have had a fit. And I probably would have been court-martialed if they found out about it. Cause again, this is in the era of don't ask, don't tell. And I met a guy named Michael Peterson online. He saw my review on a male for male review escort site. And he was like, you sound really great. And I was like, cool. You sound really good too. And he sent me a picture of him. And I'd always been attracted to older guys and he was an older guy. And I always think that's why I did so well with escorting. Cause most, you know, you, there, I remember there were a couple guys who were younger than me, who I ended up hiring me, but most of the guys who hire you are guys who are older than you. So Michael Peterson decides that he wants to hire me. And again, I don't know who he is at the time, but he writes me and I write him and we corresponded for about two weeks actually. And he lived in Raleigh and I was in Fayetteville. So it was about an hour and a half away. And again, I was in the military, so I couldn't just take leave anytime I wanted to. I actually had to be on leave from the army. And I said, well, uh, I'll come up in about two weeks and we can hook up. And he had called me on the phone and we had talked quite a bit. Again, he was somebody who I had a natural attraction to. Now, I know that people who are watching the Peterson trial would look at him and go, how can you be attracted to that guy? Well, he sent me pictures of him from like way back in the day. So, you know, I mean, he was, is he a good, a good enough looking older man? I mean, I suppose so. But he had sent me some pictures of him from like 10 years previous and uh, he was all sorts of masculine and fun. I was like, oh, hello, daddy. So uh, I felt like this is what I called a freebie. I, I can't remember if that was the term I used, but it was like somebody who hires you as an escort who you would naturally have sex with in real life anyway. Does that make sense? So it's like mm-hmm. it's a total it's a total win win. It's like, oh, my God, if I have sex with someone that I actually like and they're paying me for it. So uh, <laughs> I, I always loved those when they came up. They actually came up more times than you would think. But uh, Peter, Michael Peterson wanted to hire me. So what is the experience like to have a client that you wouldn't otherwise sleep with? Well, obviously it's not great, but as long as people were clean and, you know, took care of themselves, I was usually fine with it. Um, I always remembered that I was the best part of their day and I always wanted to give them a good time. I mean, generally I have a good heart and I wanted to make people happy and Many of the guys who hired me were in the closet or they were married or both. And they just wanted to experience sex with somebody who was nice and clean and discreet and would give them what they wanted. And so I always remembered that I was 
the most exciting part of their day. And so I wanted to do a good job. I think there's just something inside of me that wanted to make them happy. And uh, I always, you know, I, 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 like anything in life, as you continue to do it, you are able to figure out what works and what doesn't for you. Obviously, with the advent of Viagra, I think Viagra came into being for me around uh, age 25. And I tried it and I was like, oh, this is really, really good. Like, I mean, like, I mean, I really I don't even have to think in my I, I touch my dick and it gets hard. So uh, I started using Viagra at the time. And uh, I also had this uh, idea when I was an escort that if anything made me truly uncomfortable, I would just turn it down. And that happened occasionally. There were a couple different guys that I just was not able to do something with, but I was always very polite about it. I never blamed it on them. I would, I never ever said, Oh, I'm sorry. You're just too ugly. I mean, I, I just, that was just not something that I would do. I always said, you know, I don't feel well today or uh, I, I'm just, I don't think I can get it up for you. So I, I don't want to take your money. You know, I always, I always made it like I was doing them a favor. Like, no, 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 you don't want to be with me right now. Like uh, save your money for somebody else because I, I just, I, I'm not into it right now. And I, they may or may not have realized what was happening, but I was hoping to spare their feelings. Yeah. So Michael Peterson was not one of these people. Uh, do, so you, I know you planned on meeting him, but then ultimately those plans went through or, or fell through, right? Right. What happened was uh, I was also an addict at the time. So uh, we'll talk about that later, but uh, I was an addict and I had started using pretty heavily and addiction changes your personality. And I was using uh, opiates, painkillers, and Michael Peterson wanted me to meet him on a certain day. And I was leaving for Palm Springs the next day with my friend Jerry. We were going to take a trip together. And uh, I was like, well, I'll come up to Raleigh. I'm going I'm leaving from the airport there. I'll meet you that night. We'll have a good time. And then I'll leave for Palm Springs the next day. He said, OK. And I got up there that night and. All I could think about was Palm Springs. Like I was like, I, I can't wait to go. Let's go. Let's, let's go already. I was like a kid bouncing up the wall. So I didn't want to have sex with Michael Peterson. I was, I mean, and I didn't know. And I didn't, just so you know, I didn't call him Michael Peterson at the time. Like I've, I've since called him that, but I was like, I don't want to have sex with this guy. You know, like I don't want to do a call. I already have enough money. Like I don't want to work right now. I want to have a good time. So even though Michael Peterson was a relatively good looking guy, I just wanted to like chill. And I was using at the time and sort of live in my high. So that's what, that's what was happening. And that's why I didn't ultimately hook up with Michael Peterson. And we never hooked up. That's the thing. Um, I think that he realized that I flaked on him and I did flake on him. And I think he was a little butthurt about that. And he never really called me back and I never cared about it. Cause I was getting calls from plenty of other people. It was like, I, I mean, I got calls from a lot of different guys that I thought were sexually attractive. It wasn't just him. So uh, I was like, girl, bye. You know, <laughs> <laughs> how much uh, how much did, were you making at the time from this? I worked for about one hundred and seventy five bucks an hour. And I also did overnights for seven hundred fifty bucks. Sometimes I would do them for like five hundred, depending on if I like the guy or not. That's actually how I uh, met my partner. But we can talk about that later. Um, I uh, remember one time my record was six calls in one day, if you can believe it. I, uh, I did, I did six calls in one day. I had one at like 10 AM, another one at noon, another one at like three. I think I had another one at like four 30. I remember there's a really quick turnaround there. I had one at like seven and then I had one like after, after midnight at like one o'clock or something. I had sex with six different guys in the same day, 
all safe, all with condoms. And I was the top in every single one of them. That's when Viagra really, really helped me (laughs) because I don't know if I would have been able to be, I don't know if I would have been that good without it, but I was. And I remember going to, it was so funny too, because see, I was in the military at the time. So I would work in the military from Monday to Friday. And generally military members, if you're not doing something special, you get leave on Saturday and Sunday. So all of my calls would take place Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday. So then I would come to the bank on Monday and I had to always have all this money and I would just dump it on the counter. Like, there you go. Like, I got money for you. And then they would throw it in my account. I'm sure they thought I was a drug dealer. I'm sure they did. (laughs) They had no idea what was really happening. But I was all proud of the fact that I was saving all this money. And I was really good with it, too. I saved all of that money because I didn't really want to have to worry about money. So so did you feel like you were making a good living and that you were trying to, like, plan for the future? I, I, again, I was saving as much money as I could. I was throwing it into, uh, savings and to stocks at the time. That was the first time I ever got into stocks. I started buying different things, just sort of, it was sort of uh willy nilly. I, I know I use that word a lot, but it's the truth. I was just sort of like all over the place. Like I'll just, I'll pick this and I'll pick this and this, and this looks, I read about this in the paper. So let's buy this. So that's, that's, I, I got an account through Charles Schwab at the time. This is around the advent of the internet and, uh, you know, everyone's online and, uh, I got an account there and uh, I was, I was feeling good about myself. I was saving money. My tour was almost over again. I only enlisted for two years and my correspondence with Michael Peterson happened at the tail end of that. So probably during the last six months of my stay in the military. So I was already planning for my life beyond the military and I knew I was not going to reenlist. Okay. So you, you had this correspondence with Michael Peterson. How long after that did you discover this whole case against him? What case are you referring to? The, the, the whole. <laughs> you mean it's not every day that you end up in a, as a star witness in a murder trial with a famed North Carolina novelist and the murder of his, uh, socialite wife i mean uh, that just seems well, like something i know right yeah. it, it happens yes it happens <laughs> uh no i uh, i remember i had seen portions of the pre-trial online I, and i had also seen it on the news i was with my friend uh, my, my my friend my my partner mac at the time my second partner again i've said i have i've had three different partners in my life and mac was mac was my second one and i remember being in our apartment and i saw the michael peterson case like we would always watch the prices right from 11 to 12 and then right after the prices right um the news would come on and it would be like the local news you know and so i would always see little snippets of the michael peterson trial and i don't know exactly when but i know it was in the summer i got a phone call and i was still an escort at the time so even though i was with mac i was still an escort and I, because I, again, people are like, why are you still an escort? I liked it. I probably liked it. I was good at it. And it was easy money. Like, I, I love the fact that I did not have to worry about money when I was an escort. And I, and I, like I said, I'm a bit of a show off. So I liked making people happy. I got a call on my escort number on my cell phone. And I said, hello. And they said, is this Brad? That was the, that was the name I used as an escort. I didn't use my real name. I used Brad. And they, I said, this is Brad. And they said, hello, Brent. Or I had, they said, hello, Brad. This is the, the Sergeant blah, blah, blah from the North Carolina Police Department. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> what? <laughs> or from the Durham Police Department. That's what he said. And I was like, hello. And I, you know, I, I knew what my rights were as an escort. So I wasn't really fearing this guy. 
um, I knew that there was no way they could arrest me because they didn't have any proof of anything. Yeah, my number was in an ad somewhere to please call me. My naked pictures were online, but that's not proof. That's just me posting stuff online. So uh, they would have had to actually catch me in the act. And again, uh, as I've always told many of my friends, people are like, are, this is the other question I get when people find out that I used to be a uh, male escort. They're like, were you afraid of being arrested? I'm like, are you kidding me? The cops do not want to fuck with the fags. They just do not. They want to, they want to bust the women. They want to bust the hot chicks. So they're never going to set up a call where they try and bust us because that would mean that they have to actually go through with the idea of hiring a male escort and being in the room with me and starting to get naked and then bust me. So they don't, again, they don't want to do all that. They would rather bust the, uh, the hot women out there. They generally leave us alone. So uh, you'll, you'll find out about me, Taryn, that I'm, I'm not particularly politically correct. Like uh, I still refer, my, refer to myself as a fag every now and then, but uh, it's, it's not, it, it, I know some people don't like that term, but uh, yeah, you know, uh, it's, it's sort of like if you're in the community, you can use the term. And that's just how I've always felt about that. So again, the, the cops don't really fuck with us fags. Anyway, so yes, they called me and I, they said, well, uh, I'm trying to, again, this is a long time ago, so I'm trying to remember exactly what they said, but they basically intimated that I had talked with a man named Michael Peterson, who they were investigating. They said, have you heard about this? And I said, no, but in my head, I'm thinking, and I'm like, oh yeah, the guy from, uh, who pushed his wife down the stairs or something like that. Like, I didn't know all the details of the trial, but I know I had seen it online. And so this led to me being as honest as I could with the cops. I thought to myself, this, this is what I thought, Taryn. As I started to process what was going on here, and they said, you know, you corresponded with this guy, blah, 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 blah. I'd always been taught that the cops are my friend. You know, the cops are there for you. The cops are there for justice. They want to find out what's right. And I'm thinking to myself, they don't care about me. They want this guy. They want to find out what they want to find out if this guy is guilty of murder or not. So I decided to be as honest as I could with the cops because I didn't have it. I didn't have anything to hide. And I thought that that would probably satiate them. Little did I know that that was not the way to go. <laughs> because uh, as I would quickly find out, the prosecutors and the cops are not interested in justice. They are interested in winning. And that was a aspect of our adversarial legal system that I had to confront when I became a player in this trial, because I knew that my interactions with Michael Peterson, in my eyes, had no relevance to the outcome of this trial. But that doesn't mean that they cared about that at all. And that's sort of where my story started with them. Okay, so you get this call, you feel like, okay, this this could this is potentially serious. I need to be as honest as possible and they'll just move on. Were you nervous at all? Like did that you um that that they were contacting you that they that you might have been in contact with a, a potential murderer? Like how like what was going through your head? Well, I didn't know a lot about the trial, but they said that they wanted to meet with me. And I said, you want to meet with me? And they said, yes, we'd like to do an interview with you. And I said, well, I don't know that I feel all that comfortable about that. I said, are you 
thinking that you're going to try to arrest me or something. So no, sir, no, sir. We're, they were, he, and they were really like, sort of like, please, like girl, like stop. <laughs> like they were like, we, we're not interested in anything to do with you. And I knew in my head, they couldn't prove anything anyway. So I decided to go down to the prosecutor's office and have a conversation with them. And that's what I did. So I walked into the Durham police department where the prosecutors are to the courthouse, I think, and had a conversation with a woman named Freda Black. And uh, we talked about my emails with Michael Peterson. And uh, the funny part was I could barely remember it because, again, I was still using at the time. So I could barely remember my interactions with Michael Peterson. And again, I was like, I didn't even meet this guy, right? Like that. Like, this is like if this is the guy I'm thinking of. I'm pretty sure I didn't even meet him. So I remember talking with her. And they were they were certain that we had met because as we had left it in the emails, remember, he he thought I flaked on him. So as we had met as it as, sorry, as it read in the emails, I was supposed to meet him that night, the night before I left for Palm Springs. I said, OK, I'll see you tonight. But I never met him. And they didn't know that they were certain I had met him. So when I went in to do an interview with them and I said, you know, I actually never was with this guy. I could tell that they were really disappointed. And they were like, are you certain of that? Like, I mean, you can be honest with us, Brent. Like, you don't have to hide this. I'm like, no, I, I remember. I said, you can check my phone records. I said, I called him that night and said, I just don't feel like doing this tonight. Let's do it at a different time. He said, okay. And I never had any interactions with him again. I said, I left for uh, Palm Springs the next morning. You can check the airline you know, receipts for that. My friend Jerry was able to vouch for me that I never did a call that night. They had talk, he had talked with him or he had, he had talked with the prosecutors and told him that. So it quickly became apparent to them that their star witness wasn't the star witness that they had hoped that I would be. So they listened to me at the end of the at the end of the interview, she said, well, it doesn't look like you're going to be of much use to us. And I don't know. She didn't say it like that, but that's what it came off like to me. She, I, I think I think she said you're not going to be relevant. And they sent me on my way and I was like, OK, so there. See, I was honest with the cops and uh, look what happened. <laughs> so at this point, did you start looking into all of this and like figure out oh, yeah. what's going on? Oh, are you okay, kidding? So, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Can we can we set up? Uh, who Michael Peterson is and, and what this whole trial was about. Right. Well, two things. Number one, I never delete emails. That's one thing you'll find out about me. People look at my emails. That's like, you have 11,000 new emails. Thank you very much. So uh, I still had the emails for Michael Peterson. And I went back the minute I got this phone call, I went and scurried back and looked at him and tried to remember who was this guy and what happened with him. And did I actually have sex with them. Like I wanted to know everything I could about this. And then I started looking into the trial and what was happening with that. Like, was I with a murderer? Like I, I, you know, what, what, what's going on here? I wanted to know. So again, this is North Carolina in the year 2003. Michael Peterson is a novelist and he had written many newspaper articles that were very critical of the Durham police department. Basically he's a liberal. And uh, he was critical of many of the policies of the uh, Durham Police Department and their interactions with members of the African-American community. And uh, he had really taken them to task quite a bit. 
And so they didn't really like him all that much. And, you know, when you talk bad about the North, the Durham police department in a small town in North Carolina, the police department's going to hear about it. It wasn't like, you know, uh, in a big city where they were like, ah, whatever that schmo, like they knew who Michael Peterson was and they knew what, what he had said about them. So I found out that three months after Michael Peterson, and I were to meet up his wife, Kathleen Peterson had ended up dead at the bottom of the steps. And he said that it was an accident that she had fallen down the steps and the state was investigating him and thought they would later charge him with murder. And they would say that he beat his wife and tried to make it look like an accident. So that's where the story starts with Michael Peterson. And obviously you're looking for things like motive. Like, why did he do this? Like if he did it, why did he do it? And is this really what happened? What's the truth here? And so I dug as much as I could up about this. And right around the time that they were talking with me, the news would come out about the second murder where another woman ended up dead at the bottom of the steps. And the last person to see her was, wait for it, Michael Peterson. So that's how this case came to be known as the staircase murders, plural, because there was more than one woman that ended up dead at the bottom of the steps. And what was that the previous woman's connection to Michael Peterson? Michael Peterson was in the military. That was one of the things that we had in common that I liked about him. And he said that when he was in Germany, he said he was in Germany, he had a great time. But I would later find out that while he was in Germany, a woman who was a friend of his named Elizabeth Ratliff, and he was very much friends with her while he was stationed in Germany. And one day, to hear Michael Peterson tell it, Elizabeth fell down the steps and died. And she had two kids. And Michael Peterson took those kids in and adopted them. So that's how Michael Peterson was related to the first woman who ended up dead at the bottom of the steps. And just to be clear, uh, it had been ruled an accident that it had taken place 20 years previous. So it had been ruled an accident at the time. And she had obviously long since been buried and decomposed. But when this trial found out about the fact that another woman happened to die at the hands of Michael Peterson or could have died at the hands of Michael Peterson at the bottom of the staircase, They exhumed the body. Actually, they exhumed it from Germany, had it brought to North Carolina, and they ruled that death a homicide. They re-ruled it a homicide, and they tried to use that evidence in the trial. So at this point, you've looked this up. Are you thinking this guy is probably guilty? Do you have an idea one way or the other? Or like, what are you thinking? I don't know that I really had an idea at the time. I knew that it was very, very suspicious that two women would end up dead at the bottom of the steps. On the other hand, I've had coincidental things happen in my life that I'm like, how the hell did that happen? So I wasn't, you know, our our legal system is built on reasonable doubt. And as I would watch the trial unfold, I certainly felt that like there was reasonable doubt present. Okay, so and this became a very high profile trial. Really? Uh, Oh, okay. So what what was it like? How did it get into the spotlight? Do you know? Well, court TV was a big thing at the time. The O.J. Simpson trial had set off this chain of 
legal cases being covered and there was an insatiable curiosity for the legal system there had even been two television shows at the time about the u.s supreme court where there had never been any in the history of our nation so it was just like everybody wanted to listen to all trial all the time and court tv had picked up this case as something that they might want to cover they didn't realize how lucky they were going to get (laughs) as time went on they just thought that This guy, Michael Peterson, murdered his wife. Obviously, Nancy Grace was the anchor for Court TV at the time. And she was totally on the side of Kathleen Peterson. There was a bit of a split in the Peterson family. Kathleen's daughter, Caitlin, was certain that Michael Peterson was guilty. The rest of the kids, including the children of Elizabeth Ratliff, all thought he was innocent. So the family sort of split and it was really, really awkward. So they told you they probably wouldn't need you. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, so and that was their words. Actually, and it's so funny that you say it there that way because I remember now. That's what she said to me. She said, "We we're, we're probably not going to need you." That's what she said. <laughs> well, yes. There you go. Yeah. Well, ultimately, that ends up not being true at all. So, how did that come about? Well, as I said, the prosecutors and the police—they don't care about the truth. They just want to win, and their case was not going very well at the time, and even though they were able to bring in some evidence that made it look like Michael Peterson might be guilty, the defense was certainly able to establish reasonable doubt in my eyes. So, and they were and the papers who were covering the trial court TV and even some of the local papers were very, very critical of the prosecutors. Like they're doing a terrible job. They're losing the jury. The jury's not buying this. They, Oh, the other thing, they don't have a motive. That's the problem. There's no motive. You don't just go out and kill somebody who happens to be your spouse and not have a reason for doing it. The only reason that they had been able to come up with at the time was financial, but the defense had been able to introduce elements that showed that, you know, they were doing just fine. They had normal debt like anybody, but uh, there was no reason for him to kill Kathleen Peterson. And it wasn't like Michael Peterson ever really was looking for a better life himself. So the whole financial aspect to this was really, really porous. And, They knew that there was no way the jury was going to convict Michael Peterson if they couldn't hang their hat on a motive. And so that's where I came in. What happened was the defense made a bit of a mistake. In the legal system, when you you introduce something as fact and you put it forward, again, it's an adversarial legal system. So the other side is able to combat that if they think that that is untrue. Like if you say that, I have, you know, four kids and the prosecution is able to go out and find five kids who all happen to call you dad. They're going to introduce those five kids and say, no, no, no. See, you were lying. You said you had four and there's really five. So the defense had made a mistake in the opening statements by saying that Kathleen and Michael had an idyllic marriage, that they were just soulmates, that they loved each other. And uh, they were basically like the perfect husband and wife. And once the prosecutors started to lose the case, they went back to that opening statement and they saw an in to maybe persuade a few homophobic jurors. And so that's how I came to be involved in the case. So I remember I was uh, I was a student at North Carolina State University at the time. And that's one of the main things to keep in mind, because I couldn't run because I was in school and I was trying to turn my life around. So I couldn't run. Looking back, I could have. But at the time, it wasn't an option for me. And I went home and I got our mail and it was a subpoena. 
said you're scheduled to appear in a North Carolina courtroom, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, what the hell is this? So I called them up on the phone. I'm speaking to their secretary. Well, yeah, um, we decided, Brent, that we are going to have to actually call you to testify. So um, we're going to need you to be at the uh, North Carolina courtroom on this date. If you can, if you can't, we can work out a different date with you. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like this. No, no, no. Then no. no. What, what, what are you talking about? Like, I, I cannot. This is being covered on TV. I, I, it's one thing to be an escort on the Internet. But like my parents could find out about this. Like my friends would find out about this. All the people who I interact at the university would find out that I'm a male escort. This is not possible. And they're like, well, maybe we can work out something. But, you know, basically justice calls. That's what they were. Basically, they were like, girl, too bad. Like, uh, we, we've got bigger fish to fry. We don't care about your little life. That was what I was getting from them. So up until this point, the being an escort, you you'd kept that from your parents and potentially even your friends. I don't recall whether or not mom and dad knew I was an escort at the time. I think they did. I think they did. I'm pretty sure, but I, I knew that they didn't want that information blasted across the United States, you know, and one way or another, whether or not I, I honestly can't remember whether, whether they did or they didn't, I didn't want them finding out about my involvement with the trial online or on the news or on court TV. So uh, I was really worried about what my life would be like, because at the time I had gone back to school. I was a chemistry major. I was doing really well in school. I wanted to be a physician. That's what I wanted to do. And uh, well, I, again, I was an addict at the time, but so I'm going to leave that aside. We can talk about that later, but I wanted to make something of myself. And I had always seen doctors as like the, uh, the top of the uh, food chain, so to speak, as far as occupations go, because everyone re respects a doctor and I was smart enough and I knew that I could do it. So uh, it was something that I was setting my mind to. And uh, that's why I was in school at the time. So what happened was the prosecutors called me, like I said, after I got the subpoena or I had called them rather. And I panicked and I was like, so ignorant of the legal system. I called the defense. I called the defense. I was like, uh, I called David Rudolph, who was the defense attorney for Michael Peterson. And, and he's the same guy I'm seeing on the news every day and on court TV every day. And I called his legal office and I said, look, here's who I am. Uh, can you talk to the judge and keep me out of this? Because I do not want to testify in this trial. And they called me back very quickly, actually. <laughs> and he said, well, um, I could maybe listen to you, but I don't think I could really represent you because I'm representing Michael Peterson. I have a friend, however, who does some pro bono work and perhaps he could represent you in the court and get the judge to not admit you. So I sided with the defense very quickly because I was certain that the prosecutors all of a sudden did not have my best interest at heart. So I went and met with David Rudolph, who was the defense attorney. I told him everything. He said that he doesn't think there's any way that the judge is going to let in my testimony. I'm like, that sounds good to me. Uh, he hooked me up with an attorney named Thomas Laughlin. He took my case pro bono. He was very good friends with Rudolph. And he argued, he was basically my advocate at the court. And uh, the prosecutors tried to admit 
evidence pertaining to Michael Peterson's sexual proclivities and his hiring of male escorts. And they wanted me there because the only way they could get it in is evidence. You can't just introduce evidence into a trial. You like whenever, for instance, like somebody introduces the murder weapon, they show it to the police officers and they say, what is this? They say, uh, this is a revolver. This is the revolver we found at the, at the scene. It had blood spatters on it, blah, 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 blah. So there, anytime you introduce evidence into a trial, you have to have a witness to authenticate the evidence. That person was me. I was the way in for the emails. There was no way they could get the emails in without me authenticating them. And I was very leery of that because I didn't want to participate in this trial. I was like, no, 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 this is going to turn my life upside down. This is a terrible idea. Let's stop this. So I talked with my attorney about it. I was also claiming Fifth Amendment issues here because I was using the fact that they could charge me with a crime if I admitted to what I was about to admit to, which was that I was a sex worker in North Carolina. So I, I took the fifth amendment. I mean, I never in my life did I think I was going to take the fifth amendment. <laughs> Can you believe it? But I was like, I was like, uh, there's no way I, I, I thought it was an effective way or my, me and my attorney thought it was an effective way for me to hide from the prosecutors. Cause they couldn't force me to sit on the witness stand and talk about my career as a sex worker because I would be open to prosecution from them and you can't force somebody to testify some about something that they don't want to testify about. But then the prosecutors one upped us and they gave me what's called immunity, which was a legal term for saying we are not going to charge you. And my my attorney to get into a lot of legalese, my attorney did a lot of arguing on behalf of me with the judge. He also argued that there might be some federal issues that they couldn't protect me from. Of course, that was really just smoke and mirrors. But and I think the judge knew that. But once they offered me immunity, there was no way out for me. I had to testify. And uh, we, you know, my attorney and I knew that they were never going to charge me in the first place. On the other hand, I was going to be a really high profile witness and you never know. So actually, the fact that they gave me immunity was a good thing. And I felt a little bit better about it after they did. Yeah, I mean, it, this it seems insane to me that that this was being televised at the time and that you essentially were forced to be put in this situation where you were in the spotlight and you had nothing to do with it in the first place. It seems very unjust. You think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's Like I said, what happened was the prosecutors started losing the case. I mean, and this is this is my opinion, but it's the opinion of many legal experts and many of the people who've watched the trials. They were losing the case. They thought they weren't going to win. They needed a way to turn their life around as far as the, the verdict goes. They wanted a guilty verdict at all costs. They were convinced that Michael Peterson was guilty. So what if they introduced me as evidence and a few jurors were turned off by the fact that Michael Peterson was bisexual and convicted him anyway because he was just a dumb fag? I mean, that was what they were hoping for. They were hoping that a few jurors I think they were at least hoping they'd, they'd get a hung jury, that there were a couple of jurors who would say, ah, you know, he's cheating on his wife. He's got to be guilty. So uh, let's convict him anyway. And uh, I think they were probably pretty successful at accomplishing that from my from my perspective. All right. So they eventually get you on the stand and we actually have the footage from your testimony. Uh, you you showed you you sent me the link to this clip. Uh, so I want to play this uh, for the listeners. State your name, please. Brent Wagamont. How old are you, sir? I'm 28 years old, ma'am. During this time period back in 2001, um, did you have a website? 
my image and information about me was on a website. Yes, a ma'am. website. All right. And what was the purpose of that website? It was a uh, male-for-male escort review site. Okay. Tell us, please, when you say a male-for-male escort site, uh, what types of services did you perform? Basically, it's a, a companionship uh, for other males of legal age. All right. Um, and did that involve sexual activities? Uh, sometimes it does. Okay. What types of sexual activities, sir? Oh, just about anything under the sun. No. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know exactly how much the court wants me to go into detail, but... Uh, okay, uh, well, it would the be... The court a, just wants you to answer the question. That's my answer. <laughs> what, just about you, anything under the sun? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Safely, um, safely, I might add. The problem was that I was angry. That was what was happening here. I was angry with the prosecutors for putting me in this position. I was angry with the judge that he didn't keep me out. And I was also angry with the judge that he didn't shield my identity. My lawyers had tried to argue that my identity should be shielded from the press. And of course, you know, we live in the United States. The press, the press is free to write whatever they want. However, the judge can put out an order saying not to say my name or print it in the newspapers. Because if you do, he'll kick you out of the courtroom. I mean, it's his courtroom. He can do whatever he wants. So, you know, he, you, you, can, you can say his name and you can print his name if you want. But if you do that, you're kicked out of the courtroom and you're not going to be able to cover the trial live. And, of course, everybody wanted to cover the trial live. So uh, he could have blocked my identity if he wanted to. But the press had put together a legal team and they had argued against me that the free press considerations were more important to my privacy. And my lawyer was arguing, look, he is a student. Uh, he's trying to turn his life around. Um, this is just going to upset everything. And you don't need to print his name in order to get him on the witness stand. So they, they, they developed a little bit of a compromise. They said that the judge was not going to issue any order pertaining, pertaining to the press. But he did say that within the courtroom, they couldn't say my name. And so that was the arrangement that we had. And then on the day of the trial, I walked in and let me just explain really quickly that I had watched this trial. Probably I shouldn't have been watching it, but I had, I had seen parts of the trial online and after the opening statements, I mean, this trial dragged on for weeks, honey. So, I mean, the courtroom was basically empty. There were times where you saw the defense and the prosecutors arguing before the judge, and there was literally no one in the courtroom. The family members weren't even there. or They might have been there, but they stepped out, whatever. The day that I came to that North Carolina courtroom, it was standing room only. I mean, nothing like a gay ex-hooker to drum up business at the local courthouse. I'll tell you, because everybody wanted to be there. Every news crew was there. Everybody had a reporter live. They had knocked on my door that weekend. They had all tried to get interviews with me. They had staked out my front door to, to see where I was going to. They had gotten a hold of my cell phone and all called me. They called me at all hours. It just was... It was too much. And I had had it up to here. And there was just something inside of me that said, you know what? I'm not ashamed anymore. I'm going to own this. That's how I'm going to behave. And so I told my attorney to tell the prosecutors that it was okay. They could say my name because I knew they were going to print it anyway. And uh, I didn't want people to think 
that I was ashamed about the choices that I made in my life. I wanted people to know that I was proud of how I had pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Like I never asked for help from anyone. You know, I earned those that. Here's the thing. I earned that money. You know, I got it myself. I never asked for any help from the government or from other, some other person. My parents never helped me. My family members never helped me. I did it myself. And so I was very proud of that fact. I didn't care how I did it. I did it. Like I said, I'm a cat. I always land on my feet. So uh, I walked into the courtroom very defiant. I was pissed. I was pissed <laughs> at the judge, too. So when you, when you hear me say, I don't know how much the court wants me to go into, and he gives me a little bit of attitude, like, well, the court just wants you to tell the truth. I'm like, well, bitch, that's my answer then. Anything on the sun. That's how I was asked. I was just like, I, was, I have had it up to here with the both of you. Please go away. Yeah, so if you, if you listen to how I'm interacting with Freda, and by the way, this is so nuts because I'm a, a star witness in a murder trial in North Carolina of a novelist and a socialite wife. The prosecuting attorney is right out of a movie. Have you watched this clip? I mean, this woman, she's, yes. she's, like, uh, she's like one step away from To Kill a Mockingbird. Like, I mean, just like... <laughs> I, 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 the dealing with Freda and Jim Harden, who later on, he was uh, the main prosecutor and he, he would go on to become a judge. <clears throat> I mean, uh, and the judge Orlando Hudson, I mean, uh, it was just, it was something that you could, if you wrote it in a novel, I don't think people would have believed that these characters were real. Yeah. Well, it, it eventually becomes a movie and it does seem like a cheesy movie. <laughs> I know. Right. Yeah. I know. Can you believe that? Yeah. yeah. They actually get somebody to play me in a movie. And the guy, the guy was really hot. So I'll give him that. Yeah, I know. Right. But uh, my own words come back at me in that movie. And it's really, really eerie to hear something that you just naturally said, like you and I are talking right now. It would be like somebody else deciding to play me in the interview with Taryn Armstrong on the Taryn show. <laughs> That's what was happening here. So uh, getting back to the testimony, um, I was very defiant with Freda Black and the prosecutors because I was pissed that they had ruined my life. That's what I that's what I wanted to tell. them. And throughout that testimony, I think I, I took a few shots at them. Like, why am I here? That was basically that was my uh, attitude with them. And I was firmly on the on the side of the defense. But I wasn't on their on their side because I thought Michael Peterson was innocent. I was on their side because they were the only ones who were fighting for me. But our interests were aligned. So it was like the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. Like, I didn't really care what happened to them, but they knew that I wasn't against them. So they were treating me with kid gloves while the prosecutors were really going after me. As you could tell during that clip, Freda wants me to tell her what I was doing as a male escort. And I basically fight her along the way. I'm trying to make it sound as sterile as possible until I can't avoid the question anymore. At one point, she says, what kind of sex? And I said, I don't know if I can say it like anal sex. Like, I mean, I, she wants to know what I'm doing as an escort. And I'm really trying to shield Michael Peterson from as much of the gory details of my life as I can. So she introduced all of these emails and she says, do you recognize them? I said, yes. I explained that I had never met Michael Peterson, but that we had had set a time to hook up. And that, of course, lets in all these other emails about uh, sexual images of men and uh, military guys naked and uh, other potential escorts that he was thinking about hooking up with. And uh, that all gets into the trial via my testimony. All right. So let's let's listen to a little bit more of this. 
Usually they're, they are professionals because my fees were quite high. Um, I saw doctors, attorneys, uh, one judge. Um, it was not this judge. I, th- I think we can stipulate to that. Unlike most of my clients, he indicated that he had a great relationship. Most clients don't want to say anything about their relationship. He indicated he had a warm relationship with his wife and nothing would ever destroy that. He had actually mentioned his wife and he was so complimentary of her. He was like, you know, I love my wife. She's great. She understands that this is just a part of my life. That you know, I have urges. I have base needs that I that I have to get out. And, and she gets that. And that was very, very common with all of the men that I had hooked up with as a male escort, all of the men who were married, most of the time their wives knew. And if their wives didn't know, it didn't mean that they wanted to leave their wife or they they were unhappy with their wife. It was just that it was something that they needed. A lot of men who were gay got married in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, even the 80s. They got married to a woman because that's what you were supposed to do. And a lot of them turned out to be gay but they were they had responsibilities they had a wife they had kids they had a life they had friends many people aren't just going to uproot their life i give so much credit to the gay men and women that i know who are in their 40s 50s and 60s who decide to come out at that late stage in their life because it's really amazing to watch but there are a lot of people who just don't have that courage and um you know most of my clients were like that they just they wanted their life to remain the same but they wanted to have their jollies on the side. And so that's, that's usually where I came in. So I was, was I spinning as much of my testimony as I could in favor of Michael Peterson? Yes. But it just so happened that my spinning lined up correctly with the truth in that most of the married guys I was with, they had wives that they loved and Michael Peterson had spoke very glowingly of his wife. And, uh, uh, there, there was certainly no indication from my perspective that he was unhappy with her. All right, and then finally, sir, do you know anything about the death of Kathleen Peterson? I know diddly, diddly. <laughs> so finally, at the end, you're asked if you know anything about the murder. You say, "I know diddly," uh, which <laughs> that's something my dad says. I picked that up from my dad. Uh, my dad, who I love to death, uh, would often say the word diddly. It's not it's not diddly. It's diddly. You know, it's like there, it's it's two syllables. Diddly. Yeah. And I said, I know diddly. I know zilch. I know basically what I what I'm trying to say when I say that is I'm up here. I'm talking to the jury and I was looking at the jury many times during my testimony. If you notice, I was one of the few witnesses that did, that did that. I was basically telling you guys they have me up here because they're trying to trick you. They want you to convict Michael Peterson. They're hoping that you're homophobic. They're hoping that you think that he's a terrible person. They're hoping that you're so turned off by Michael Peterson and his sexual proclivities that you don't really care much way or the other, whether or not he's guilty, you end up convicting him anyway. Like I was imploring the jury, please be smarter than this. Like don't fall for their tricks right now because they're trying to pull one on you. Yeah, and I think that definitely comes across. And uh, I mean, in that in that statement, I, I know Diddley. Right. The thing that, that they actually cut off there was I said, I know Diddley, Diddley. And the judge says, I take it that means none. <laughs> and I'm like, zero. <laughs> like, uh, basically, why am I here? Why am I here, David? Why am I here? 
Yes, giving uh, giving the courtroom sass just like you do uh, us on the podcast. I was very sassy. That was the oh, let's address that really quickly. So, I, as I said, I was pissed off when I when I took the witness stand, and I was determined that I was not going to be made to feel badly about the choices that I had made in my life. So, my attitude on the witness stand was very very happy. I mean, it was a terrible occasion. Obviously, the murder of someone is terrible, but I was not going to be made to feel like nothing by these people who I didn't know. So I took the witness stand in a very defiant nature. I got a lot of criticism for that because people were acting like I thought I was in the middle of a comedy show or something. But that's not true at all. It's just that I wasn't going to let anybody push me around. And as you have gotten to know me over the years, Taryn, um, I don't really suffer fools very much like i if i feel like that something is not right i'm gonna let you know about it i don't have the ability to just let it go <laughs> yeah you might say that <laughs> yeah um so yeah as you as we mentioned there is also a movie version of this we also have that clip so uh i watched this this is actually interesting especially coming right off of hearing the uh the real clip uh as as brent mentioned he's basically just parroting uh, Brent's lines, but let's, let's, let's listen to this. The DA is calling Brent Walgamon as a witness, giving him immunity. Harden can't get a conviction with the evidence, so he's going to create some drama with this Brent. Well, who is Brent? You know him as Brad, the male prostitute. The state calls its next witness Brent Walgamon. At the time, I was on active duty at Fort Bragg and charging 150 an hour as an escort using the name Brad. Uh, my clients were... Mostly doctors, lawyers, and a few judges. Not this judge. (laughs) (laughs) What types of services did you offer as a prostitute? (laughs) I prefer the term male escort. Okay. What types of services did you offer as a male escort? Ooh, just about anything under the sun. Safely, I might add. Good to know. Just so everyone is clear, you and Michael Peterson never actually met. Is that right? That is correct. So you never had sex? That's right. We never did. And in these email exchanges, did he ever talk about his marriage? Yes. He said that he had a great marriage and that he had a lot of warmth and affection for his wife. And when did these emails end? September 5th, 2001. So the two of you never met. And all communication stopped in September of 2001. And what do you know about the death of Kathleen Peterson in December of 2001? I know Italy. See, he said it wrong. It means nothing. I know nothing. Zip. So then why are you here? I don't know. He says diddly. What, yeah. what is diddly? I don't know what diddly is. Diddly is something that uh, I've never heard of before. The, the term is diddly. So that's going to have to be our hashtag here is diddly. I'm telling you. Yes. That's what's going to be. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hashtag diddly. Right. Yeah, it, the thing, too, about this is that, like, they took all the lines that were kind of funny that you, you know, you were being sassy and, and being kind of, like, funny about it. And they, they totally like killed. Like it was not oh nearly my God, as funny right? as the Can actual just, testimony. For real, like they had no sense of timing whatsoever. Like the whole point about the, you know, I was with a few doctors, lawyers, even a judge. Like there was a moment where there was some murmurs in the courtroom. It was like, uh, like people are uncomfortable. <laughs> and the judge picks up on that. And he goes, 
not this judge. (laughs) But like they totally stepped on their own timing there. It was like, first of all, he says a few judges, which sort of like you lose the gag. And then like the judge is like the judge, whoever is the actor for the judge has no sense of timing whatsoever because he's not even finished with his line. And the judge is already in there with not this judge. Like, I mean, like it just doesn't work. Like, who are you? Come on, stop. (laughs) Yeah. Poor, poor filmmaking here. Uh, But yes, so this is the testimony. This goes out. This is broadcast. And immediately, I imagine there is some response to this, right? Yes, uh, there is quite a bit of response. I actually did an interview with a local uh, reporter from uh, one of the uh, stations in town. And I wanted to get my side of the story out there because, again, I was like, how am I going to go on with my life after people know this about me? Do they think I had something to do with it? You know, I, and again, you know, being a sex worker in North Carolina, not exactly a great thing. The other thing that this had an effect on was my business. After I started up ending up in the news, no client was going to hire me. Nobody wanted to talk to me. All of my regular clients totally ceased communication because they were like, I don't want to be implicated in anything. So I don't want to talk to Brent anymore. So my, my business basically went out the window. And, uh, also, because of the events of the trial, uh, I started to spiral into addiction even more so than I was before. And uh, it really took hold of me after the Peterson trial because I felt like all of the good things that I had been working for since I entered the military had been turned upside down. And I didn't know how I was going to go on. Like, how is I going to become a doctor if I'm in the internet as a former male escort? You know, I just, I never considered how much this is going to have an impact on my life until after it did the day after I testified, I had called my mom the the night previous because, you know, my testimony was live on court TV, but I was aware of the fact that my parents didn't get court TV. They were not, you know, they didn't have the full cable package, so to speak. And I called my mom and my parents were none the wiser. And I was like, okay, cool. Like my parents, they don't know. They don't know what's happening. Fast forward to the next day when the previous night, uh, the, uh, let, me, let me again, let me go back. Sorry, I'm, this, this is all coming back to me. That day after I given my testimony, I got calls from every news organization. Good Morning America, 2020, Primetime Live, CBS This Morning, The Today Show. They were all covering the trial. But up until now, they hadn't done much except the opening statements. But this was a great time to talk to me because not only had I given my testimony, but Dr. Henry Lee, the famed forensic scientist from the OJ Simpson trial, he had also just recently given, given part of his testimony. So it was a good time for an update on what was happening in the Michael Peterson trial. So I was contacted by Diane Sawyer's representatives. Diane Sawyer was on good morning America at the time. And they said, you know, we'd like you to uh, do an interview via satellite. And I said, I would think about it. But then a friend of mine who was in the news said, you know, if you do this, there's no way you can control the questions that are asked. I mean, she could ask you anything. And uh, also um, anything that you willingly say in a news interview could be used against you in a legal proceeding like your immunized testimony from the trial. That's considered Fifth Amendment there. There's no way they can use that. But if you go out and willingly say something on national television that you've done this, this and this on this, this and date, there's a little bit of legal jeopardy. And you might want to be aware of that. So I turned them down. I said, no, I'm, and I, I'm hoping that by me turning them down, 
that there's no way they're going to talk about me on the on the Good Morning America and the Today Show because I know my parents watch Good Morning America. They watch it like, like your parents. I don't know. Maybe they have something they do every day. My parents every day they watch Good Morning America. So I'll be damned if I was going to end up on Good Morning America. I was like, there's no way I'm going to do that. Fast forward to that morning. Mac and I tape Good Morning America. That's my partner at the time. We tape Good Morning America and we tape a few other shows just because we want to know what's happening. And I see that they've decided to play my testimony on Good Morning America. Instead of having an interview with me, they used Lisa Bloom, who has become a famed defense attorney, but she was a legal correspondent at the time for Court TV. And that's how they got in my testimony on Good Morning America. They needed somebody to talk about it and they used Lisa Bloom to do it. So they basically played all the fun parts of my testimony and that's what got out. So once that happened, it was over. There was no way for me to avoid this anymore. All of my friends found out about it. All of my relatives found out about it. My parents found out about it. I knew that they did. I got a call from my mom at 11 o'clock that day. And my mom said, Brent? I said, hey, mom. She goes, how are you doing? And I'm like, oh, my God, you know. And then she's like, yeah, yeah, we know. She's like, we saw it on Good Morning America. She just, here's the great thing about my parents. My parents didn't care. They didn't care. They wanted to make sure I was okay. They wanted to make sure that I was not implicated in anything. It was all of a sudden, nothing mattered anymore. They didn't care that I was an escort. And in fact, I can't remember if they knew I was at the time. I think they had an idea of what was going on. But uh, they were just nervous for me and the legal implications of my life. And I was trying to tell them, mom, I'm okay. Don't worry. They're not after me. They're after this guy. I told my mom that uh, the judge could have blocked my testimony, but he did not. And mom was like, why didn't he block your testimony? If he could have, I'm like, mom, like, well, I, I can't explain it to you. There's a lot of legalese about why he didn't. And my mom was like, I'm going to write the judge and tell him, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I was, uh, it was all over then. And so uh, I think that had a lot to do with uh, my personality now in life, because I had tried to avoid the fact that I was an escort for a long time. But I think the events of the Peterson trial really sort of shook me to my core and I understood, you know what, if I wasn't an escort, I would have made these choices in life and I wouldn't be where I am in life. So life's all about choices. I really believe in fate and I really don't think my life could have ended up any any other way. Like, Taryn, I say this to you in all seriousness. I know it is crazy that I ended up in the Michael Peterson trial. My mom, my life is so crazy that I sort of was unplussed or nonplussed by it unplussed by it I, maybe that could be our hashtag i was unplussed i was nonplussed by it i was like this is just a normal day at the office for me like my life has been pretty amazing up until now and this is just one more amazing thing that happened to me and i'm not at all surprised that somehow some way i ended up in this sensational trial <laughs> yeah well so you had your mom calling you you had all this attention after this trial what were you, i know it, it was obviously you felt awful about this you said you spiraled into your addiction even further you were shaken to the core and you sort of learned to be just like out there but this open. this was I the learned moment to be open yes. yeah and this is this is the moment that that really changed that so like what was that process for you it was tough because a lot of people you know I, I you know give me five minutes with anybody and i can explain to them this is what i did this is these are the choices that i made 
This is why they called me as a witness. But it's very hard to get that information out there en masse. And so I was a columnist for the North Carolina State University paper. And I wrote a column on my experiences in the Peterson trial. And I basically called out the prosecution for what I thought they were. I thought they were a bunch of homophobes who were trying to get me to convict Michael Peterson via some testimony. And they were hoping that there were a few bigots on the jury. Like that's what my view of the prosecutors were. Again, I say this to you guys seriously. After dealing with the cops and the prosecutors through the Peterson trial and also through addiction, I would come to believe that prosecutors really don't care that much about the truth. They care about winning. And that would really impact me when it came to dealing with my addiction, which followed the Michael Peterson trial. And the events of that definitely related to that. Ultimately, the case uh, comes down. Michael Peterson is found guilty, correct? And he is sentenced to life in prison. Yes, he is found guilty. He is sentenced to life in prison. Uh, I think that the prosecutors had decided not to seek the death penalty at the time, even though they could. And so the judge quickly sentenced him to life in prison and off he went. Like there wasn't any time like the jury found him guilty and they took him away. Never to be seen from again. Girl, bye. See you later. So you would think. But there was yet another twist in the Michael Peterson trial that would come up 10 years after Michael Peterson was in jail. So this is what happened. And this is how my story ended up being in the news again and being covered again. (laughs) Michael Peterson was found guilty via many different things, my testimony being one of them. And the jury has since intimated that it may have had something to do with it. But the one witness that they all agreed was the most important was Dwayne Deaver, the blood spatter guy. And he had, testi- he had testified about the blood and how the blood ended up on certain things and how it couldn't have been a fall. It had to be this. Dwayne Deaver was a liar. He ended up being implicated in a few different cases where he had made up evidence and he had also falsified his findings. And basically, he had created experiments in order to get to a certain result. Like, these were not scientific experiments where you look, let's do an experiment and have a control and see what happens. He wanted to get to a specific result. And so he would do the experiment in such a way where it would get to that result. Basically, he wanted to make the defendants look as guilty as possible. And that, combined with the fact that he had falsified parts of his testimony, combined with the fact that he had also falsified parts of his uh, the underpinning of who he was and what his education level was and what cases he had worked on in various trials since, those cases were overturned and the people who were convicted were let go. But then they looked back and they saw that, oh, my God, he was the blood spatter guy in the Michael Peterson case. So the judge looked at his testimony and they re-looked at all of those blood spatter videos that he had put forward for the Michael Peterson case. And the same judge, Orlando Hudson, who I had interacted with on the witness stand, was the same judge who vacated the conviction of Michael Peterson and his first trial verdict was thrown out. So Michael Peterson after nine, 10 years in prison, was all of a sudden a free man. It was like his murder conviction had never happened. It was just something, it was yet another turn in this crazy case where it was like, 
How did that happen? Like he was supposed to be in jail for the rest of his life. And somehow he's out walking around with everybody else now. So to make a long story short, because I know we've been on this for a while, Michael Peterson eventually entered what's called an Alford plea. The state basically, they had had its pound of flesh. There were new prosecutors in place by this time. They couldn't recreate the trial because a lot of the few of the witnesses were actually dead. I had moved away. Actually, the North Carolina Supreme Court had ruled that my testimony was inadmissible because they didn't get a search warrant for the computer in the first place. It just a lot of different things happened, but they weren't going to be able to recreate the trial. And so they uh, they uh, entered into a plea with Michael Peterson. He entered an Alford plea, which is basically a plea of no contest. He pleaded no contest to manslaughter, which allowed the prosecutors to say he was guilty because in the eyes of the law, that's a guilty verdict. However, he was able to plead no contest for civil purposes. And also because it was a manslaughter conviction, the time that he had already served was counted and he was let go. So Michael Peterson is out walking around. You could go meet him right now, Taryn. He's down in North Carolina. <laughs> in fact, my partner always asks me, like, have you talked with Michael Peterson since he got out of jail? Actually, my partner always asks me, have you called Michael Peterson? Like, like, have you written him? Like, and I'm like, no, like, I don't care about Michael Peterson. I mean, I feel badly that my testimony was used against him, but I don't know what my feelings are on Michael Peterson. Like, if I always come back to this. This is the thing that a lot of people don't understand about the motive of Michael Peterson or lack thereof. The prosecutors, as I said, they were searching for a motive. So their version of events of the night of the killing was that Kathleen was in Michael's office. He had printed off the emails to me, which were, by the way, on the desk. They were his emails to me were on top of the desk that he was working at. And I don't know why. But maybe he was still thinking about me or, you know, jacking off to that material or what? I don't know. But they were there and the police found them that night. The police said that they believe what happened was Michael, that Kathleen Peterson had walked into his office because there was evidence that she had used his computer. She found the emails. She confronted him and he killed her. My whole problem with that is that. Let's assume for the sake of argument that that's true, that she did find the emails and she confronted him. At that point, she's going to be the one who's killing him. Like, I mean, she's going to be the one who's pissed off. He's going to be the one who's defensive. He's going to be like, oh, I'm sorry, honey. Like, uh, you know, I'm sorry. You know, he's, I didn't mean to hurt you. She's going to want her pound of flesh. Like, if anybody's going to kill anybody, Kathleen is going to kill Michael, not the other way around. So their whole motive to me, was really, really flimsy. And uh, again, I can't even believe the jury bought it in the first place. So you feel like you feel like he's probably innocent? I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there was enough reasonable doubt there that it's very hard for me to get to a conviction. However, again, I come back to two things. Number one, really? Two, in, two women end up at the dead at the bottom of the steps and he happens to be the last person to see them both times and number two if michael peterson didn't kill kathleen then what really happened because i looked at the blood on the wall of the staircase and that did not look like a fall to me on the other hand Dwayne deaver was all over that crime scene so what was real and what was not? Did he change things in order to make it look like he wanted to? 
There were many times where he was the only person there. So you can't necessarily look at the evidence and go, I trust it. Again, it comes back to, I'm not trying to say this. I think I I might want to qualify my statement a little bit. I don't know if all cops and all prosecutors are this way. It's just ironic because I'm listening. I remember now that uh, Rob's dad was a cop. But the cops that I interacted with and the prosecutors that I interacted with, they didn't care about the truth. So uh, that's why I have my... A pretty low opinion of them. All right. Well, this has been a very interesting interview so far. I think uh, I think we have to end it here for now. There's certainly a lot more to get into with Brent, but we'll save that for uh, part two, uh, which we will do uh, eventually. There's so much left to talk about between the addiction, uh, prices right. Uh, finding finding RHAP, joining RHAP. There's so much left to talk about, and th- I mean, I, this is this has been so great, Brent. I, thank you so much for sharing all this. You're welcome. Me. This is actually, uh, as I mentioned to you previous before we uh, started the podcast, uh, I haven't talked about this more than anything. I feel like I, it was really fun going down memory lane as far as these events go. I'm trying to pull out as many memories as I can at the time, and trying to put myself back in the headspace that I was at the time. And it was really, really fun to do. So thank you for allowing me to do that. I've never actually really talked much about the Peterson trial, but uh, it's fun to get it out there. Uh, yeah. And thank you so much for I mean, I know that I, I am very like ignorant of both the trial and of of all of these these things between uh, being an escort and all of that stuff. And uh, I know that I, I told you before, I was like, uh, you know, you basically gave me the go ahead to just ask anything that I want. So I appreciate that. Right. Uh, you're accepting of my ignorance and, and uh, no, totally. and my questions. Yeah. My, uh, I have a really good friend of mine who, uh, you know, I I've mentioned before uh, to you privately that I have a YouTube channel devoted to slots. And I have a friend who also plays slots with me and his name is Brian, otherwise known as SD guy. And we have become such good friends in life. And he says to me often that the reason that he likes me so much and is able to put up with me and all my narcissistic tendencies is that I'm such an open book. Like I don't hide anything from anybody. And I feel like that's very disarming for people in general. And I feel like that's probably why they respond pretty well to me. At least some people, you know? (laughs) Yeah, no, I totally see Like you are somebody that I, I do. I can feel very comfortable talking to because I feel like, you know, not only is it is it going to be difficult to like offend you, but you're also just very open and accepting of people's ignorance and willing to to give, give people the benefit of the doubt and answer their questions and, and educate them on things that they might not know. Yeah, everybody has a story, you know, uh, there's just uh, different forks in everybody's life where they make different choices. And I think everybody is generally trying to make the choices that they think are best for their particular lives. I am no different. And again, you end up in the life that you're supposed to because of the choices that you made. If you go back and change anything, it's like the butterfly effect. If you pull out one thread, you're going to, it's like Star Trek. You're going to unravel the tapestry of your life. So uh, I wouldn't change anything about the way my life has uh, taken place up until now. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, everyone. Uh, make sure you check out The Terran Show on iTunes. There have been already so many great people who have rated and reviewed it on iTunes. It's been very, very helpful. I, I really, really do appreciate it. Um, the more you subscribe and, and rate and all that, the, the better it is for the show, the more you're supporting it. So thank you so much for doing that. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Armstrong Terran. Brent is at One Lucky Gay. If you want to uh, to tell us all about how you what you thought of this this episode, I'm sure there are going to be plenty of thoughts uh this has been uh very illuminating 
And I am still putting the call out for any music submissions anyone has for the podcast. I am willing to take a look at that and play it on the show. So, yes, again, thank you so much for joining us. Let's do hashtag diddly. How do you spell that, Brent? It's D-I-D-D-L-Y. Yes, diddly, not diddly. Right. What's, yes. what's diddly? That's like that's like <laughs> something you do to yourself. Like, uh, no, 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 it's uh, it's diddly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it was also suggested to me uh, that uh, that tapping that should be part of my motto in the show uh, after the last one. Karen has a podcast, THAP. So you can tell us if you if you enjoy this, you tap this podcast. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds really terrible. It does. It uh, does. <laughs> All right. Would you tap that? I'd like to tap that podcast. You know, there have been a lot of people (laughs) who are like, I enjoyed the podcast so much. I totally tap that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Like, oh, okay. Thanks. Uh, All right. So hashtag diddly. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you next time.